Sunday Dispatch. You're listening to the Sunday Dispatch on FBI Radio 94.5. My name's Lindsay Riley. Each episode, we take a closer look at news stories from around the world and at home, their social and political complexities, and often examine the way that they're covered in mainstream media. Joining us today on the show is Dr. Ramsey Baroud, Palestinian-American journalist, editor of the Palestine Chronicle, and author of a range of books. Dr. Ramsey, thank you so much for joining us this morning on the Sunday Dispatch. Thank you for having me, Lindsay. Pleasure. This year has seen continual escalation by the Israeli state against the Palestinian people. Israeli police and military forces have killed more than 50 Palestinians so far this year, um, among them including children as young as 14, civilian mothers and fathers, and notably yesterday, veteran Palestinian Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akleh was assassinated while working and reporting in the Jenin refugee camp. Israel has justified many of its recent violent escalations as retaliations for attacks on Israeli settlers by Palestinians, and Western media narratives have kind of supported this, depicting events as clashes where, you know, both sides seem to be equally culpable, locked in this never-ending cycle of conflict. You know, a current common narrative for coverage of Palestinian and Israeli conflicts. But Dr. Ramsey, is it fully correct to depict the Israeli state's escalations as simply retaliations? Or do we need to look more broadly at these raids, these provocations, as a continuation and a deepening of the Israeli settler colonial project and everything that that entails? Right. So, you know, trying to be objective here and and think about the term clashes, I think it also falls into into the category of uh, the term conflict and the term dispute, um, you know, this, these terms are applicable in situations in which uh, there are both sides that are, you know, kind of defending their own interests as if they are, you know, equal in, in some kind. But Palestinians are not living in an independent state with an independent army. Uh, and an independent government that is able to make independent decisions and to engage in disputes, conflicts, retaliations. Palestinians are an occupied, militarily occupied nation under um, utter and complete control by the Israeli government, the Israeli military. They face on a daily basis uh, uh, Israeli war crimes, those of outright murder, arrest, uh, beatings, uh, uh, the loss of their precious land, the destruction of their forests, of their orchards, uh, and the confiscation of their uh, farming areas. Uh, there are walls extending throughout the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem. Palestinians are sectionalized and imprisoned behind walls, literally, it's not a figurative term. Uh, an Israeli apartheid wall in the West Bank, Israeli walls around besieged Gaza. Gaza is a whole different story, a whole different platform of oppression that, that arguably is unprecedented uh, in modern history, where you have two million people uh, you know, living in an open air prison uh, at the brink of actual starvation in a land that was declared by the United Nations itself that would be uninhabitable in 2020 uh, because the water is 98% of it is undrinkable because the air is polluted, because the sea is polluted, 
because they don't have access to the outside world without um, you know, the very, very limited access granted to them by Israel and its uh, benefactors or, or supporters in the Egyptian government. Um, so it's really difficult to imagine any scenario, however one wishes to be so-called objective and, and claim that indeed these are two equal political and opposing political forces in which they are disputing or in a conflict or clashing. But sadly, uh, mainstream media, I wouldn't say ignorant, I think to say it's, there's a lot of ignorance in mainstream media is to kind of give them some kind of, a, you know, a defense mechanism to kind of, in a way, to justify and to give them a pretense of why they report the way they do in Palestine. It is all intentional. Mainstream media has always had an agenda against Palestine and pro-Israel, and that's a whole different discussion of why that is the case. But those who are defending themselves against a military occupation and apartheid recognized by the international community as a military occupation and recognized by international human rights groups, such as a human rights watch, in, uh, Amnesty International, and even Israel's own human rights organization, Bit Salem, to be an apartheid state. It's really, really inappropriate to refer to this as clashes. Palestinians are in state of self-defense and Israel, the Israeli government and the Israeli military and the armed Israeli settlers are the ones who are doing the harm on a daily basis to Palestinians. What is the impact, I guess, particularly this year with things escalating, with all these um, reported Israeli raids on neighborhoods, um, eviction of people from their homes, um, clearing out of entire communities? Um, how, how, how much more damaging is it to simply keep referring to these sort of things as clashes or, you know, you know, all those sorts of false narratives um, when things are actually getting progressively worse and um, due to, you know, the actions of one particular side, this being in this case, Israel? We have to keep in mind that the Israeli government behaves with an agenda. I mean, they've had this agenda since long before the destruction of historic Palestine in 1948 and the establishment of the state of Israel um, on the ruins of that Palestinian uh, homeland. Um, that agenda carried on all the way until today, going through all the wars and the other, you know, the military occupation of 1967. Um, Israel doesn't behave randomly. And, and, and that's where the damage happens because Israel has a very, very clear blueprint and they have been behaving according to this blueprint. For example, the expansion of the boundaries of the occupied city of Jerusalem, the creation of the so-called greater East Jerusalem, the confiscation of Palestinian homes uh, and replacing the, the residents of these homes with, with uh, uh, Jewish settlers and extremists, the uh, expansion of illegal Jewish settlements uh, in the West Bank and the pushing back of Palestinians and the, the, the constant ethnic uh, cleansing of Palestinians from these areas, what, you know, what Israeli historian and dear friend Ilan Pape refers to as the incremental genocide underway in, in the West Bank. Of course, in, in, in Gaza, it's not an incremental genocide, it's an outright uh, genocide that's been happening there, especially since 2006. 2007. So keeping in mind that there is a very clear and decided and progressive agenda aimed at ethnically cleansing Palestinians, 
and 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 uh, expanding uh, the boundaries of the state of Israel, including the the, the annexation that is happening right now in the West Bank, uh, referring to this as clashes and disputes and such, and and making it appear as if there are both sides that you know at best case scenario, which is rarely uh, at effect anyway, uh, they are both equally culpable uh, to whatever uh, problems that are happening there. It gives Israel a blank check. Carry on doing what you are doing. Our, you know, even an occasional criticism in some Western media here and there is not going to dissuade you. It's not meant to dissuade you. And at the end of the day, Palestinians find themselves with less land and less rights. Um, so we have to confront the language because if we do not confront the language, we are allowing the status quo to prevail. And, and without confronting the language, Palestinians will always find themselves instead of being recognized as, as victims and as occupied people who have legitimate right to resist this military occupation. They are always be held as suspects they are always going to be held as if they are the aggressors and the instigators of all of this. Absolutely. And I mean, so much of these, I guess, media outlets try to act like they're above, you know, any sort of um, decisions or like, you know, sitting above in the center. Um, but like you said, language is so critically important and, you know, you can't claim to be neutral because your neutrality or supposed neutrality um, is like you said, empowering um, Israel to continue what it's what it's doing on a similar sort of note with um with I guess false narratives um and false sort of tropes that get um get trotted out is one that is the religious one you know the you know Judaism and Islam have always been clashing in the region it's an age old conflict it will never be solved and I feel like that particularly has also kind of played out with with the recent I guess flashpoint um, of violence in Alaska. I guess flashpoint itself is a is a very neutral term. The Israeli raids um, on Alaska, um, you know, people putting that sort of um, that sort of attacks and that violence in that. Well, this side has always been contested, um, you know, between um, Judaism and Islam. Is it more accurate to kind of look at this under the prism of colonization rather than religion, you know, and under the destruction of culture that often comes um, under colonial projects and settler colonial projects? It is. It is uh, co colonialism, uh, and, and it's more raw, you know, uh, 19th, 20th century sense. Nothing has changed. Only the narrative has changed, and that's problematic. Um, sadly, the way that this so-called conflict, and by the way, I myself end up finding, you know, finding it difficult to express you know things in in a in a relatable way to an English speaking audiences, without using these terminologies. But I have to always qualify these terminologies by saying, you know, so called or you know, uh, purported or something of that nature. Because if I use a language that does not um, qualify in such a way, a lot of people are going to find this unrelatable. And the and and whose fault is that? 
well, sure, we will take part of that responsibility as well, because many of us felt, well, you know, if this is the way that they understand it, so we better try to access it using that language. Otherwise, we are going to appear as if we are Martians, you know, coming to Earth and speaking a language that nobody speaks. But in actuality, like for example, when I traveled in, in Africa and, and Southeast Asia and South America, I never resort to this language. It is colonialism. It is mm. part of a larger American imperialist scheme in the Middle East. What Palestinians are doing is not just resistance uh, and, and retaliation to violence, but it is freedom fighting and they are freedom fighters. And we are part of a larger historical scheme that started with Western colonialism uh, in, in the South. Uh, you know, hundreds of years ago, and we remain one of these very uh, last, uh, uh, um, you know, kind of platforms of colonial expansion and, you know, native resistance. Uh, but again, you go to CNN and you speak that language, first of all, <laughs> going to CNN by itself, it's, it's almost impossible if you are a Palestinian intellectual. But if those of us who are allowed access we have to mitigate, we have to negotiate a space that is relatable, but in the process of doing so, quite often we end up subscribing to that narrative. And back to the, the term narrative, news shouldn't be about narratives. News should be about facts. But if you look at the way that the, 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 the Palestinian resistance and Israeli colonialism uh, have been depicted in mainstream media. It's never based on facts. It's always based on narratives. So just a, a, a quick example. Uh, Israel killed uh, uh, a dear colleague of mine, uh, Shireen Abu Akhle, uh, on, on, on Tuesday, uh, May 11th. Uh, and they wounded um, uh, someone who I worked with for many years, and we did a book together. Actually, my first book was with him. Uh, a Jenin-based journalist, Ali Samoudi. Um, and immediately it conveyed to the media that uh, they suspect that it was Palestinians who killed them. And I remember, you know, and when this all happened, it took me by, by a complete surprise because Shireen is a very well-known journalist in Palestine. And it's well-known to the journalists, uh, to the Israeli soldiers rather, because she's always there. She's always, um, you know, fighting for her right to report on the news and that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, it, some people thought it's outrageous. Why would Israel make the claim that it was actually Palestinians who killed their own journalists? And of course, the answer to that is narratives, because Israel knows that it has a lot of sympathy and a lot of margins to operate within in mainstream media. So Israel could come up with a blatant lie, and it knows that the mainstream media is not going to point out the outrageous and blatant lie, but rather are going to deal with this lie as a possible fact. And that's indeed what happened. Um, and because Israel already has won the sympathy of mainstream media and, and, and many of their audiences, that basically once again put the Palestinians in the position of being the ones who are making the possible false claim. We have seen this numerous times in the past. We have seen, seen it with the killing of Muhammad al-Durra, the little child in Gaza who was killed in the first year of the Intifada in 2000 when he was sitting 
by his father and they murdered him in broad daylight and they said the Palestinians killed him. And mainstream media said the Palestinians killed him. So this is this is it. This is how narratives work. It doesn't matter whether it's news or fake news. It doesn't matter if it if, if it doesn't stand the test of, of facts or um, investigations of any kind. It doesn't matter what Amnesty and Human Rights Watch say about it. What really matters is that who has access to this platform, who has access to indoctrinate the audiences and to push and to build a narrative, and who is denied that access? Those who are denied the access, even if they have the truth on their sides, unfortunately do not matter and are unable to build a narrative. And they have always, always to be on the defensive. I mean, absolutely. And I guess I, I can give perspective of the media here for um, the coverage of Shireen Abu Akleh's um, murder. I mean, even on what I saw on the main you know, supposedly balanced or, you know, what some people call left-wing God forbid, which is just ridiculous, outlets like the ABC, um, our national broadcaster, is very much both sides in, you know, like uh, very irresponsibly, you know, playing up the, oh, the possibility that she could have been killed by Palestinian militants. So, yeah, it's it's just as bad here um, as it is in America, which makes me wonder, um, Ramsey, what do you make of Australia's relationship with Israel? I mean, the, the kind of unconditional support um, that we give them, willing, willingness re uh, recently to recognize Jerusalem for them. I mean, other big countries like the United States have their more you know, nefarious reasons strategically in the Middle East. Australia really doesn't. Um, so is it, is it simply like some sort of recognition between settler colonial states? What, what do you make of Australia's relationship with Israel? Um, right. So relationships between countries is often based on, well, not often, always, again, always based on interest. Rarely do countries behave based on moral values, uh, especially when the moral values do not really get you anything at the end of the day. Uh, Australia has made a decision that its interests lie with Israel. Uh, because uh, there is a strong Israeli influence within Australia itself, because Australia, unfortunately for Australians, uh, revolves within an American uh, uh, you know, political paradigm. Uh, it follows suits American interests, whether, whether in that part of the world, in Australia's so-called neighborhood, or internationally. And because, um, sadly, the Arabs and Palestine supporters in the global south do really very little to demand accountability and balance from the Australian government or many other governments that support Israel. Um, and of course, you have the issue of mainstream media that is really, uh, I mean, when I, I, I came to Australia once and I was really shocked uh, immediately by seeing the nature of the coverage uh, regarding uh, Palestine and Israel. I, I had an interesting episode actually where I was in, you know, no need to mention names, but I was in a, you know, surprisingly made it to a mainstream media outlet. And the, new, the news uh, anchor or, or host, um, you know, was very, very kind to me. And she asked me, you know, questions and, and, and all of that prior. And when we went on, on the air, she basically started attacking me personally as if I was the as if I was a spokesperson for, of terrorism. And I, I couldn't understand why the change of attitude. And, and then she finished and, and, then, and then we, you know, we were off the air and she says, uh, 
Uh, Ramsey, I'm sorry I have to, these, to ask these questions, uh, but uh, I want you to know that me and many of my colleagues are on your side. <laughs> and I shared that, I shared that with friends, including John Pilger when, I, when he came to see me in Australia. And he said, this is really quite typical of many people in the news, is that they feel, maybe they do feel something different, but they are expected to act uh, in a certain way, otherwise, you know, they're, you know, they will not have future in this field. So that kind of made me realize the kind of strong control that um, that friends of Israel have uh, over Australian media. That now, of course, doesn't mean, um, you know, it's time to throw in the towel. To the contrary, it just means that our job is that much more difficult and more challenging. But we have to fight back. We have to hold the media accountable. I believe in alternative media. With time, as I grow older, I begin to realize that mainstream media cannot be trusted because by definition, mainstream media is a corporate media. And corporate media exists to serve corporate interests. And corporate interest stands on the side of governments. I mean, you know, we all read the book by Noam Chomsky, Manufacturing Consent. And we know the relationship between media, militaries, governments, and so forth and so on. So changing mainstream media is nonsensical in the sense that you can't basically change mainstream media without owning the corporate corporations behind it. Mm. So that's, that's kind of really obvious that you can't, but you can put pressure on it. You can try to influence it. You can, you can try to operate within the tiny little margins, but on the other hand, our, uh, our case as Palestinians, like many other oppressed nations around the world can only be articulated within the space of alternative media. That's how we fight back and that's how we build grassroots movements in various parts of the world, including Australia. And if Australia and Israel find a lot in common amongst themselves, because they are both settler states, Palestinians and many uh, indigenous communities and groups in, in Australia, we also have much in common with people in those countries who are ultimately fighting the same fight for justice, for delayed freedom, for human rights, uh, for recognition, for spaces to operate and, and, and to claim your own identity. Uh, and these are the spaces that we really should be focusing uh, mostly on as Palestinians. Absolutely. Um, Ramsey, you also wrote a fantastic piece recently about Palestinian resistance, you know, on the same theme. What, event, what have events this year taught us about Palestinian resistance and what more needs to be done um, to secure Palestinian freedom from occupation, from apartheid, um, from Israeli brutality. Right. So Palestinian resistance is often, you know, you know, uh, uh, that these all of these topics are are so mixed in such a way that, you know, when we talked about narratives, for example, and about the negative depictions of Palestinians to the point that we quite often have to defend Palestinian resistance or defend the Palestinian people's right to resist. But resistance doesn't need anybody to defend it. Resistance is a human reaction, whether at an individual or at a collective level. Palestinians resist because that's what Palestinians ought to do. This is what Palestinians who are living uh, in a system of oppression and, uh, uh, and military occupation of to do. And Palestinians are resisting because all nations that have been through that same process in the 19th and 20th century have done, they resisted. 
But what is so incredible about Palestinian resistance is the odds against which they resist. And the Israelis are receiving all sorts of armaments, weapons, submarines, uh, uh, you know, all sorts of killing technologies from the United States, about $3.8 billion of weapons annually, while the Palestinians are receiving none, literally nothing. And yet somehow, oh, keep in mind that the Palestinians have a corrupt leadership. And, and, and it wouldn't be otherwise, because if it wasn't corrupt, Israel would have not allowed it to operate openly, right? Yet somehow, for 75 years, the Palestinians continue to resist. There is something incredible about this. I, I think about it in terms of my refugee camp. I was born and raised in a refugee camp in the Gaza Strip called Nusayrat. Nothing special about Nusayrat, aside from the people of Nusayrat, of course. We don't have mountains, we don't have caves, we don't have any, you know, this sort of topography that would allow people to sustain the resistance for many years. So the country is flat. Uh, it's watched by Israeli drones 24 hours a day. Uh, it's surrounded by Israeli boats, uh, in Navy boats uh, in the Mediterranean and by Israeli uh, watchtowers and, and so forth and so on. Yet at the same time, there hasn't been a single day since that refugee camp was established and designated as such for the last 75 years in which the people of this refugee camp uh, ha have not resisted Israel. Israel destroys, they rebuild. Israel's, um, Israel attacks, they resist. And, and that is something that is really worth pondering. And, and I, this is for me and for many uh, Palestinians, that's our source of hope. The fact that we have not stopped resisting, not a single day, it means two things. That Israel not only will not win, but cannot win. And Palestinians cannot lose simply because they have made a collective decision that they cannot, under any circumstance, be defeated. A very powerful and important note to end on. We've been chatting to Ramsey Baroud, Palestinian-American journalist, editor of the Palestine Chronicle, incredible author as well. Dr. Ramsey, thank you so much for joining us today on the Sunday Dispatch. Where can listeners keep up to date with what you're up to um, or anywhere you want to recommend them, point them in in particular? Absolutely. Um, uh, one thing, they can go to our website, palestinechronicle.com. Uh, palestinechronicle.com is one of the main Palestinian news sources along with electronicintifada.net. Uh, anywhere in the world, we have an English and French websites. Uh, but, and I'm embarrassed to actually make a plug for the new book that came out with Professor Ilan Pape, uh, but it's really, really important that you show uh, support for this kind of independent research and purchase our book, Our, our Vision, for liberation, engaged Palestinian leaders and intellectuals speak out. It just came out of uh, by Clarity Press in the US. Fantastic. We'll put links to all those up on the programs page at fbiradio.com. Dr. Ramsey, thank you again for joining us today. Thank you very much, Lindsay. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs>